You are tuning in to Let's Talk Careers with Sarah. I am aired every Wednesday at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. In this show, I talk about career advancement, resume revamps, interview expectations, how to stand out from the crowd, how to brand yourself, and skills you need to become a CEO. All of this is on Armed Radio on my show, Let's Talk Careers with Sarah, exclusively on TuneIn Satellite and the Armed Radio Network. My client, Gina, developed better control of her work life by rethinking the way she approached her calendar. If you remember, that's what I have discussed last week in a previous episode about how Gina was struggling and had kind of like being stuck where she was. So when Gina committed to more actively managing her schedule, One of her goals was to devote more of her work time to her most important activities. But when I asked Gina to name her highest priorities, she had a hard time deciding what should go on that list. It is tempting to just react to whatever seems most pressing as the day goes along. And Gina often fell into that trap. She sometimes lost track of her more significant objectives because at any given moment, they felt less urgent than other people's demands for action or attention. Realizing she didn't have enough time or energy to go around, Gina resolved to think more carefully about how to flag high-value work. She decided that once a week she'd arrive early near her hometown office and spend an hour or so at her favorite coffee shop, sorting out her immediate priorities as she reviewed her calendar and project list. Now, here is a seven-point system that Gina uses stay in touch with her priorities and a similar approach might work for you. The first one is remember the big picture. A good foundation for setting your priorities is to draft a list or statement about what matters most. Gina wrote a career vision, which was basically a list of her key values and work-life goals. It included items like nurture my team members, stay current in my field, and have time for rich social life. Gina keeps a copy of her vision with her calendar and looks at it during her weekly priority review session. The next thing is to prioritize work categories. Gina knew that the items on her lengthy task list weren't equally productive, but she tended to vacillate in gauging their importance. Her particular problem was that she was easily sidetracked by other people's sense of urgency. She decided to keep her assignments on a steady course by sorting activities into these four categories. Tier 1, important to her bosses, to their goals, and to their success. Tier 2, important to the goals and the success of her direct reports. Tier 3, related to her routine management responsibilities, like human resources and budget matters. And then it's tier X. Tier X is stuff that could be done by other people. 
The next, the next tip is create a daily list of three. A technique that made a big difference in Gina's efficiency was her new practices of starting every morning with a list of three tasks that must be done by day's end. These are the items that are so useful or important that their completion may make the day a success, no matter what else happens. She writes the list on an index card and posts it where she will see it frequently. And the next one is schedule time for high priorities. Gina makes standing appointments with herself and blocks out time on her calendar. For both her list of three and tasks related to her tier one project, because she feels most productive in the morning, she often sits aside and closely guards a block of time between 10 o'clock and noon. On some days, she will use this precious time block to concentrate on a single project, and on others, she will spend the hours moving quickly through a number of small steps for a variety of important assignments. Then, schedule low-value time for lower-value work. Administrative and other routine tasks may be of a lower priority than your major projects, but they still have to be completed in a timely way. Because Gina feels less efficient late in the day, she sets aside some afternoon hours for handling this kind of work. She often makes a game of it by seeing how fast she can speed through her list, and she rewards herself sometimes by leaving a little early when she completes certain tedious reports. And the next one, find the biggest bang for your buck. Some things aren't top priority in the grand scheme of things, but they are worth doing immediately because of how much trouble they will save you in the long run. For example, <clears throat> if you suspect that a quick explanatory meeting would allow you to calm down a disgruntled colleague, you might want to add it to your list of three. If you wait, the problem may faster and ultimately the misunderstanding will require much more of your energy to resolve. And the seventh is get rid of clutter. Some activities on your to-do list or calendar just aren't of high enough priority to be worth doing, yet they tend to linger on your list sometimes distracting you or making you feel guilty. It can feel liberating to get real about your odds of finishing these low-value action items. Gina now scrutinizes her calendar and task list for, for this kind of clutter and says it feels great to delete it. Now, play with prioritization systems until you find one that works. Time management experts have written about many different ways for setting priorities. I tend to be cautious about recommending any single approach because I have found that the clients most likely to stick with the system are the ones like Gina who develop their own hybrid approaches. What may be most important is that you regularly pause and evaluate the relative importance and urgency of all the things you feel you must do. As you go through your evaluation process, ask yourself questions such as this. How would I rank the relative importance of these items? How do they relate to this year's top performance objectives? 
to my most important long-term career goals. Is this birth urgent and important or just urgent? What will happen if I don't get this done? Why does my boss or client want most from me? What actions will assure that this is a productive day? What will I learn from this? Will it help me grow? Will this help me build or improve relationships with other people? Could this expand my business or job description? When I say business is a side hustle that you have, what will it take to make this success? By asking these questions, you get it more clear about yourself, your priorities, your productivity, and you, you will feel better. Now, getting your boss to listen, it's really something that I find challenging. Now, how can I get the boss to listen? That's a question I often hear from clients. Perhaps you have the same problem. Is it sometimes hard to complete a project because you can't get the boss's attention? Do you have so do you head home feeling frustrated because your boss won't give you the feedback you need? Or even worse, does your career feel off kilter because you and your leader are out of sync? No boss is perfect. Most managers are too busy and some are flat out weak. But complaining won't get you anywhere and you have too much at stake or just throw up your hands when the communication process breaks down. Part of your strategy as an entrepreneurial professional is to communicate smoothly with your bosses and clients, no matter how difficult it may be to reach them. Your goal is to assure delivery of your key messages, even when it doesn't seem fair that you have to do so much of the hard work. Now, let's go through the tips that can help you get through your boss. Even if you and your boss communicate pretty well, these strategies can make your message even more effective. Be, be succinct. Assume your boss is busy and won't want to waste time. If you ask for three minutes to discuss something important, but then talk for 10 before reaching your point. The boss could be feeling impatient or annoyed by the time you make your case. Plan ahead. Before your conversation, be clear in your mind about your points and be prepared to state them simply and directly to prevent confusion or distraction. Limit the number of items you intend to raise. If you requested a meeting where you'll discuss several issues, propose a brief written agenda, a simple email with a sentence about each topic can set up your conversation in a good way. Be clear about your goal. Sometimes you have to choose between having your say and having your way. It can be tempting to use your FaceTime for venting about your problems, but that might not lead to solutions. Be strategic in the way you frame your issues and focus on positive proposals that will support your specific objectives. Understand their communication preferences. If you don't get through, it might not be the content of your message so much as how or when you deliver it. Different people take in and share information in different ways. For example, bosses who are extroverts may be external processors who want to use you as sounding board while they explore their own thoughts. 
while in processing mode, they might not pay much attention to your agenda, so you should wait. And introverts may find it may find listening to the to be tiring, so don't make your pitch after they have been through exhausting meetings. Notice how your boss communicates with her boss of clients or clients, and try the same techniques. If she tends to put her most important request in writing, do the same with yours. Be a mindful listener. Strong communicators are active listeners. Your bosses expect you to listen carefully, and good listening helps you understand what they want. But at times, when we think we're listening, we're sometimes focused on something else, such as what we want to say next. When you truly concentrated on deep listening, you will come across to your boss as alert, centered, and respectful. And the last one is let go of frustration. If the boss doesn't seem to listen, you actually have two challenges. The first, of course, is to break through the logjam by becoming an even better communicator. But there is only so much you can do, and much of this is about the boss, not about you. So the next challenge is to learn how to not let it bother you so much. It's vital that you don't obsess or your annoyance could make the situation worse. Writing in a journal is one way to examine your negative reactions and let go of some of the emotions. Now let's dive into leading upward, manage the boss in a good way. Although successful leadership styles vary considerably, the best leaders have attributes in common. For example, most tend to have integrity, strong value systems, and a genuine desire to do the right thing. The leaders I most admire are consistently willing to step forward and serve, even if a task is menial or unlikely to lead to recognition. And their influence over other people extends in all directions. In other words, not only are they adept at managing their direct reports, but they are also able to guide other colleagues and collaborators. Some of the stronger leaders exercise a special skill. They are able to lead upward, influencing their bosses to make better decisions and become more effective. For example, there is Sam, who didn't expect to rise above his role as a vice president of communications. He had five years until retirement, and he wanted during that time to contribute even more to the company he loved. Without telling his colleagues, Sam adapted the goal of thoroughly supporting and even mentoring Joe, his young and recently arrived CEO. Because of his job, Sam had a good comprehensive view of the company's activities and customer relationships, and he made an effort to listen to colleagues and stakeholders at every level. Sam gathered and sorted feedback and data and related in a positive, effective way to Joe. Being well-informed and having Sam as a sounding board helped Joe to grow quickly into his job. And his private mission of fully supporting Joe made Sam's last years of work more interesting and rewarding. In my own corporate career, the boss who taught me most about leadership was a humble guy named Dave Weatherwax. During his decade, 
as Senior Vice President and General Counsel of Consolidated Natural Gas Company, they remained modest and never seemed to seek their limelight. And yet he exercised great influence, often quietly guiding the rest of the C-suite. During my first year with the CNG, I watched Dave carefully, trying to learn from his low-key but effective approach to management. Finally, the day came when a colleague and I met with Dave to pitch a major initiative, asking his support for a public outreach project we thought might be outside his comfort zone. In making our case, I raised every argument I could think of, carefully framing my point to reflect Dave's goals interests, and possible concerns. Dave listened intently, and then, to our surprise, he approached the proposal on the spot. His only change was to set a budget much bigger than the one we'd requested. We were almost giddy with success as we left his office. Then he stuck his head out his door and called us back. He said, I just want you to know that I saw what you were doing, but I don't mind being led if it's done really well. Dave let us know that upward management can benefit everyone, but it must be done adroitly and in the right spirit. Here are the strategies to consider if you want to become better at leading up. First, set unselfish goals. Leading upward is not the same thing as trying to manipulate the situation as you look good or somehow score a win. Leading is about offering proposals, guidance, and support to serve the interest of the organization. When you step in to lead your boss, your intent should be to remain relatively invisible as you give the enterprise a helpful nudge. You quietly act like a CEO, serving the team with vision and integrity, and nobody else needs to know about it. Part of Dave's leadership strength was his authentic humility. He had no interest in self-aggrandizement, but sincerely cared about serving the greater good. Understand what your boss needs need, need. If you want to influence and assist of people, the people above you, it's critical to have a good sense of their goals and responsibilities. Develop a theory of how success will look from their perspective. Consider the organization's mission, current strategy, and primary challenges, and look carefully at what your bosses are trying to accomplish. Maintain your areas of expertise. One reason for Dave's considerable influence was that nobody respected his judgment as a lawyer. Even after his portfolio was broadened to include a variety of functions, he was recognized as the ultimate legal expert. A good way to maximize your influence is to develop an area where you are recognized as the authority. Find a niche where you can excel and bring value to the enterprise by remaining current and by continuing to build your special skills and knowledge. Be gracious in managing credit and blame. Dave understood that credit is a vast resource to, to be spread around, not hoarded. He worked hard to make his boss, the CEO, look good. And when things were going well in his area, he invited his team to step forward and be thanked for the good work. 
Though Dave was lavish in sharing credit, he didn't indulge in spreading blame. When problems arose, he took responsibility. When someone made a mistake, he typically examined the situation in a lawyer-like way and then turned immediately to finding solutions. Report without drama. Your boss is more likely to rely on you if she can count on you to report the facts in a simple, straightforward way. Create a strong network for gathering information and build your credibility by telling the truth without indulging in gossip, exaggeration, or negative commentary. It makes sense to be tactful, but you won't be acting like a leader if you only tell your boss what she wants to hear. Be organized. Your boss's time is limited, and one way to you can assist them is by making sure that none of it is wasted. When you meet with them, be prompt, stick with agenda, and don't talk any longer than necessary. Look for opportunities to help your boss, your bosses. Keep things moving smoothly and find ways to save them from unnecessary stress. A good approach for improving your upward management skills is to search for the role models. Look around for people who are successful in leading upward and learn from how they do it. And if you already had a team, watch for times when one of the members is particularly skillful at managing you. Notice whether they are good at leading up because they, are, because they save you time provide you with something you need, or make you feel more positive. Now let's talk about the Jimmy Fallon touch. Good manners help you shine. I was delighted when a radio commentator reported that the National League of Junior Cotillion chose Jimmy Fallon to top its best-mannered list of 2014. According to the league's website, Fallon was selected as number one for maintaining, maintaining the dignity and respect of others through his comedic disposition as host of The Tonight Show. I can't think of a better choice. Part of what makes Fallon so charming is that he invariably seems delighted to be with his guests and determined to help them look good. Much of our enjoyment comes from his intense interest in their success and his whole body laughter at their jokes. Even if you don't think he's funny, you can't help but like Jimmy Fallon. Perhaps social graces like his are so appealing because they are a low-key application of the golden rule. The way he interacts with others seems to stay... I'll be nice to you, and I have confidence that you will be nice to me. The ideals of polite behavior may not be topic of discussion in your workplace. But you will know that your colleagues mean if he describes some, someone as a real gentleman or a true lady. People with excellent social manners tend to stand out. And we enjoy being with polite people because they tend to notice us and are so aware of our needs. For a personal brand that sets you apart from the crowd, learn from Fallon. 
develop a reputation for treating everyone with respect. Of course, what counts most are the big things like pitching in to support your co-workers in crisis. But you can enhance your brand by consistently exhibiting good manners in even small ways. Now, these seven strategies can help you develop the Jimmy Fallon touch. First, say hello. When we're around other people, it's always decent to acknowledge their presence. Your rude co-workers may act like others are invisible, but with a simple good morning, you can forge a sense of connection and goodwill. The next one is shake hands. The, perf- the perfect shake hand is valued in the U.S. culture, and it allows you to exude confidence and warmth. This simple gesture can help you to make a good first impression. Reconnect with someone you haven't seen in a while, or say a polished goodbye. Try these tips to perfect your handshake. Be quick to extend your right hand, particularly if you are the older person or have the higher authority. Look at other person in the eye before and during your handshake and offer a greeting and pleasantry touch as it's great to meet you. Allow your grip to be firm but not crushing. Shake your hand up and down just a few inches and not more than once or twice. Speak with basic courtesy. Your habits of speech say a lot about you. These guidelines set a minimum standards. Be quick to say please and thank you to everyone. Say excuse me if you bump into a some into or must interrupt someone. Avoid profanity and crude language. Praise or congratulate folks folks on their achievements, even if it requires you to bite back a twinge of envy. Be considerate of others' time. When people are busy, it's unkind to waste their minutes and hours. Be punctual for meetings and appointments. Respond quickly to invitations to save time spent on follow-up. Don't waste time with rants or lengthy account of small matters. And don't play with your phone during a meeting or conversation. Treat colleagues with class. The way you talk about others can shape your reputation. Don't gossip with co-workers about co-workers. Don't badmouth your boss, your team, or your organization. Share credit, paying special attention to junior team members whose work might otherwise get unnoticed. Then, debate with civility. Disagreement is part of the creative process, and responsible professionals aren't afraid to speak up, but that's no excuse for being mean. Express criticism in terms of their work or the concept, and avoid making it about the person. When possible, frame your comments in a positive way. Avoid sarcasm because it's seldom amusing and can lead to misunderstandings. Let the other side speak genuinely. Listen to their views and imagine what it's like from their perspective. Dine with style. Table manners are about assuring that everyone has a good time and nobody's enjoyment is ruined by someone else's gross behavior. Don't get hung up on questions about which fork to use. The point of standardized silverware rules is to make guests comfortable as they select and implement for each course. And nobody will care if you pick up the wrong fork. On the other hand, avoid disrupting the table by knowing which wine glass or bread plate belongs to you. The standard is that all glasses are placed on the right side of the main dinner plate. 
drink to the right and other dishes are on the left, eat to the left. Beyond that, in the U.S. business circles, these rules are widely accepted. Don't object when your host indicates whether you should, where you should sit. Always chew with your mouth closed. Don't speak when you have food in your mouth. Eat quietly, taking small manageable bites. Don't slurp or blow on your food to cool it. Just wait until it's not so hot. Never blow your nose on your napkin. Never pick your teeth at the table. The main point is that people with a Jimmy Fallon touch project the message that everyone matters. They are considerate and they help build cultures when everyone can collaborate, perform well, and enjoy their work. It's no wonder that other people like being around them. Now, do's and don'ts of saying sorry. All we discussed in previous episodes, people often judge you by the way you speak. If you develop annoying speech mannerisms, distracted listeners may not value your comments or perspective or perceive the full scope of your expertise. On the other hand, your personal brand is enhanced when you have seen as someone who always seems to say the right thing. Do you aspire to be one of those tactful, well-spoken people who are welcomed into most conversations? One way to begin to speak more gracefully is to listen carefully so you can pick up cues from the crowd and adapt the best tone. Listening to the way other people interact enhances your sense of balance. It helps you avoid the extremes of expressing too much or too little or coming off as too warm or too cold. Tact also requires an awareness of the tremendous power of certain words. Some words have more consequences than others and will be used with care. One of those big impact words is sorry. It's typically defined to include emotions like regret, sadness, and penitence, but in practice it can have many shades of meaning. And when we say the phrase I'm sorry, in a work environment, we might be expressing anything from remorse to subservience, uncertainty, or defiance. The nuances of the word do vary with organizational cultures. But here's my take on how, when, and whether to say sorry. Do say you're sorry when you've done something wrong. When you screw up on the job, the best plan is to confess immediately, apologize sincerely, and turn quickly to rectifying the situation or making sure it won't happen again. For the victim, when you say, mea culpa, you make a bit of moral restitution. Your discomfort gives, gives him some power over you, and he's able to decide whether to accept your apology or to withhold forgiveness. But apologizing can benefit you as well. When you fess up, it's like a reset button, giving you a chance to move on and restore the normal order. Be sincere. Not all apologies improve matters. Your story is more likely to be favorably received when you mean it. You can transmit the intent of your regret by describing how you actually feel. I was so upset that I couldn't sleep last night and proposing a way to make up for your wrongdoing. Don't say sorry if you aren't to blame. Sometimes we say I'm sorry not to express remorse, but to show our compassion. 
This might happen when things go wrong in some way far beyond your control, such as when horrible weather inconveniences your guests. Or you might say, I'm sorry, to acknowledge a personal loss, such as death in the family. Some psychological research suggests that this kind of superfluous apology can promote a sense of trust and connection between you and the listener and make everybody feel better. Don't say it when you don't mean it. Saying I'm sorry when you actually feel the opposite can come across to the recipient like an insult. Sorry is a complex word and it can be inflammatory when your nonverbal message is when your nonverbal message is the opposite of regret. Don't make the situation worse by accompanying the phrase I'm sorry with a grimace or an eye roll and avoid beginning your sentence with I'm sorry but when you don't feel at fault. Avoid making a fake apology. Instead, focus on improving the situation and say something positive such as, let's see what we can do to fix this. Don't say sorry so often and insult. If you say, sorry, but this draft is not good, don't think your wording will make the message any easier to accept. If your remorse is genuine, make clear that it is you regret and then be direct in the way you deliver the rest of the message. You might say, I'm truly sorry if this will ruin your weekend, but the client needs a number of changes in your draft. Don't say sorry when there is nothing to apologize for. Some people repeatedly say sorry as a conscious way to express deference or humility. For others, the pattern may be an unconscious expression of uncertainty. Either way, constant apologies can make you look frightened or powerless. My competent and generally confident client, Tina, developed the verbal tick of saying I'm sorry every time she was about to ask a question or make a suggestion. Her use of the phrase became so ingrained she didn't know she was saying it. As soon as this habit was brought to her attention, Tina realized it made her sound like she was experiencing a crisis of confidence. Her closest colleagues admitted they found it annoying and with her permission, they helped Tina break the habit by reminding her when there was no need to apologize. Do you think that you say I'm sorry too often? Or perhaps you find it difficult to apologize and don't do it enough? Becoming more aware of your speech patterns can help you decide whether they need some tweaking. To capture a clear picture of this kind of speech habit, keep a log for a few weeks. Write down every instant in which you apologized, noting that you were regretting and say impact and any impact from your remark. Sometimes it's hard to hear your own words, so this could be an occasion to call upon friends to gently point out your habit. My most vivid memories of business school include a few instances when professional professor Bill Day put aside the class syllabus and spoke vividly about phenomena that could make a difference in our lives. In one such discussion, the professor urged us to stay focused on important things in life by relying on the 80-20 rule. That rule of thumb tells us that the most of the resulting in, a, in any situation are determined by a small number of the causes. Expressed another way, the rule predicts that about 80% of your achievements will flow from about 20% of the things you do. The number of 80 and 20 are an absolute. The key point is that your bottom 
line isn't impacted in the time in the same amount by each unit of your work or of your time. So a small proportion of your activity may be responsible for the most of what you get done. The rule seems to have endless applications and has been given in a variety of names like the law of the vital few. Many accounts suggest that it was the first applied as a business principle about a century ago as Pareto's law. Economic Wilfredo Pareto wrote that in any situation just a small portion of the resources will yield most of the output. For example, he said that if a government were to give a number of poor people money to invest in small businesses, the investors wouldn't all be equally successful. A small group, the 20%, would make most of the money resulting from the investment, the 80%. What captures my imagination was when a professor Day told us that computer modeling can illustrate principles like the 80-20 rule that demonstrate how the universe isn't just hopeless disorder. It was comforting to hear his evidence that the world operates according to some kind of logic. And I welcome his suggestion that what we can spot familiar patterns and use them to make better choices in our career and in life. It isn't necessary to understand why it works. If you look around, you will see numerous applications of 80-20 rule. In a big organization, a few of the managers may deliver the lion's share of results. Of your many clients, only a few may count, may account for most of your income. If you offer multiple products, it's likely that several will deliver most of your profits. If you have lots of customers, about 20% of them may voice about 80% of their complaints. And the rule probably holds true in your personal life. Of all the things you do, a few bring you most of the fun. Of all your skills, a few deliver most of the rewards. Of the many people you know, a few are responsible for much of the joy. With these strategies, the 80-20 rule can help sharpen your career. The rule can remind you to stop obsessing about the lower priorities on your to-do list and shift your attention to your major objectives. It can help you find a place to get started when you are feeling overwhelmed. It suggests that you consider with 20, which 20% of your workload may make the most difference and, tap, and stop worrying about all the rest that don't count so much. When you are in doubt about what to do next, turn to the 80-20 rule for guidance like this. Focus on the big goal. Don't try to pursue every opportunity that comes along. When there's too much to do, concentrate on activities most directly related to your key objectives. Shift more, shift more of your attention to the 20 or so percent of tasks or events most likely to support your top priorities. Don't try to be great at everything. Find ways to spend more of your time on the activities that you do well and that yield results. Let's say you are a fundraiser who is great with people but not so proficient at generating those final follow-up reports. Instead of spending long hours struggling over your desktop, find ways to free up your time for face-to-face -face contact to meet your deadlines. Get smart about delegating, outsourcing, using new technology, or renegotiating the desk work that will never be your strong suite. Choose your companions. Make choices about 
how much time to spend with the various people in your life at work. Don't obsess about annoying or unproductive colleagues. As much as possible, disengage yourself from the time wasters and naysayers. Instead, direct more to your attention of your attention to people who may become productive allies. Look at the data. Sometimes it is worth examining the actual numbers to determine precisely how much of your time and resources result in most of your achievements. As, as uh, we discussed before on managing priorities, good way to get a, realist, a more realistic picture of your work patterns is to keep a log for a while. You may be surprised by how few of your activities deliver most of your success. Then simplify. Apply the rule. Applying the rule is sometimes simply a matter of getting rid of clutter and distractions. If everything seems too complicated, look for ways to get rid of some of the massive 80%, so the vital 20% will become more evident. This might require delegating tasks, declining invitations, getting rid of low-value products, simplifying your routines, and reducing the archive of documents and stack of stuff that you have been saving just in case. Then pursue your passion. Identify which 20% of your life yields your greatest satisfaction, enjoyment, and sense of well-being. And reflect that knowledge in the way you schedule your time. If being in nature helps to keep you feeling balanced and there is no time on your calendar for a walk in the park, it's time to make the shift. Back in 1920s, 1970s, feminists seized on mentoring on a way to help women is their way through the men's club atmosphere. Then dominating so many American offices through the years, the idea has become mainstream on how there is widespread understanding that having supportive mentors help both women and men to advance professionally. By the definition of help of mentor, there is widely and not all career-focused mentoring programs succeed. What makes structured programs and individuals' efforts so difficult to get right is that mentoring involves building a relationship between two people and strong human relationships require a delicate mix of hard work honest communication and good luck as with any healthy relationship mentoring partnership prosper prospers only when both parties receive value initially the mentor may be motivated simply by a desire to give back and to be a good citizen and early in a relationship, the mentee usually does get the most benefit, including sympathetic advice. And sometimes an active champion at critical moments. But when the relationship really clicks, the mentor eventually receives a at least as much as she gives. If you are the mentor, mentor, one of the first rewards is the pleasure of having someone listen to you and the good feeling that flows from him or her um, following your advice. Then as the relationship grows, the mentee's questions and feedback can give you a chance to pause and gain a new perspective. Through you seeking advice and through the long term, your conversations tend to become truly two-way, with both of you seeking advice, sharing insights, and exploring, and exploring delicate career questions in an environment of trust. Several of my dearest friendships began decades ago 
when I agreed to serve as a mentor, motivated simply by desire to support deserving young professionals. I can't think about mentoring without feeling a wave of gratitude. For two particular mentees, Andrea Wilkinson and Sherry Little, when I met these two best friends, they were young congestional staffers, thrilled to be working on Capitol Hill, but not always sure about how to build careers in the government. First, Andrea and later Sherry asked me to serve as a mentor. Both were obviously talented and I enjoyed their company, so I said yes without giving it much thought. At the beginning, we spent much of our time together talking about their work challenges, but soon I was hearing as much good advice as I could offer. Though the years Andrea and Sherry have pushed me beyond my career comfort zone, sent along clients and opportunities, challenged me to be less self-deprecating and have been there for all my, major, my biggest events. These strategies can help you create powerful mentorship relationship, mentoring relationships. Being involved in mentoring can be enormously rewarding, whether you are the guide of the protege, if you want to attract additionally, additional mentors or strengthen the relationship you already have, try these tactics. To identify mentors, begin with causal connection, casual connections. If you hope to recruit a mentor, don't start with complete strangers. Most of these people are too busy and unlikely to make time for you. Instead, look at your, to your network. As we discussed previously, your network extends from your inner circle all the way out to communities of folks you weren't even met yet, you haven't even met yet, like members of your professional groups or your colleagues alumni association. Think about the people with whom you have even a slight connection and gradually strengthen some of those relationships, slowly and steadily, one sugar grain at its time. To recruit mentors, request a bit of advice. All too often, young professionals ask highest-ranking colleagues to serve as mentors, are told yes, but then nothing happens. Usually, it's more effective to gradually engage advisors, starting with a small request, encouraging further involvement as they get to know you better. For example, you might approach a senior colleague and say something like, I want to get better at X, and I notice that you are great at X, so I wonder if you could give me advice about this X-type challenge. For more help, make specific requests. Some mentors would like to do more, but they don't know where to start. They can't read your mind, and it's often up to you to explain when you need more than advice. So make an explicit request when you want something from a mentor. If programs, procedures, or deadlines are involved, do all the homework so you can make it as easy as possible for them to put it in good words or fight your battles. And understand that it isn't fair to ask for action if your mentor doesn't have a suitable rank, access, or knowledge. Welcome honesty. At times, a mentor's most important contribution is to give constructive feedback, even when it's unpleasant for you to hear it. If you are working on a project in which your mentor has expertise, ask for suggestions about how to improve your chances for success. Don't allow yourself to be offended by honest feedback. Even if it's hard to swallow and, res and resist the urge to respond defensively. Aim for two-way relationships. Mentoring works best when both parties make an effort and enjoy some benefits. If you are trying to forge a stronger bond with your mentor, ask yourself what's in it for them. 
Can you, the mentee, make the relationships more valuable by serving as a source of information and support? Do you know that they care about most? What they care about most? Have you figured out the kind of activities and venues they prefer? Then practice sponsoring and mentoring. To learn how to create better relationships, look for opportunities to practice being the mentor. Even if you are at the bottom of your hierarchy at work, you can find mentees through alumni and nonprofit networks, and you find ways to make contributions to your mentees. You will get a better sense of how to manage upward and energize your own mentors. Although there are many reasons to be a mentor, much of the joy comes from helping someone else. If others guide you along your professional path, now is a good time to pay it forward. If you didn't have the help you needed, break the negative cycle by giving someone else the kind of support that would have made your life easier. If you want to be a great mentor, consider these suggestions. First is listen. You can't solve everything, but you can always help by asking questions in a positive way and genuinely listening to the answers. Request plans. When mentees identify realistic goals, Suggest that it's time to create a plan. Help them identify action steps and milestones and hold them accountable for moving forward. Make connections. Be alert to opportunities to tap into your own network on behalf of mentees who need information or introductions. Once you build up a bank of mentoring relationships, it can be particularly gratifying when your long-term protégés Agree to help you to help you out. I'm sorry, to help out your newest crop of mentees. Meet regularly. Don't let strong mentoring relationships fade away after the initial challenges have been addressed. If the match between the two of you still feels right, suggest ways to continue the conversation, even if there is no pressing need. You're, you have both made an investment, and the best part of your partnership may be just beginning. Reciprocal mentoring can be powerful. The classical image of mentoring involves a relationship where an older, capable person helps to guide someone with less experience and knowledge. That idea of a wise, generous senior advisor leading us along a career path can be wonderful and soothing, but it's not always available or even desirable. Here's what can make mentoring really hum. Creating relationships intended to work both ways. I thought about this new style of mentoring during a long weekend at, at my New York residency. As I, as I dropped in and out of the three-day conversation between my husband and one of this, his much younger professional pals. Now... Um, We have several things to understand that it's really important to have to give reciprocal mentoring a try. So think about the potential exchange. As a starting point, define what you want to learn and some of the strength you have to offer. If you have potential patterns in mind, approach them with the idea of mutual mentoring. If the problem is that you don't know where to start, Spread the word about what you are seeking. Professional community and alumni circles can provide venues 
for meeting people of different generations and backgrounds. Identify needs and goals. It's not enough for patrons to begin with a vague sense that they'd like most career help. Each partner would should enter the process with a clear ideas about issues to explore and forms of assistance that, that would be welcome later when the relationship successful launched, it might grow in a surprise direction. Consider logistics. It's great if you find a mentor in your neighborhood and can meet over coffee or lunch, but what if you go through your national group and find an ideal partner who lives across the country? Explore options like phone calls or video chats and set a schedule that's comfortable and convenient for both of you. Now let's go over by don't be don't be sabotaged by your own frustration. Years ago I learned something about career resilience by watching how two women in the same large organization handle their work related frustration. Mary had an abusive boss who bullied her and made her days miserable. She was from a humble background and not as highly educated as some of her colleagues. And she felt shy about confiding in co-workers when the boss insulted and demanded her, demeaned her. Senior management finally became aware of the boss's ugly habit when he was investigated and fired for unrelated wrongdoing. Mary knew that she had a strong grounds for complaints, but she decided to let go of her hurt and anger and become strategic. In spite of her bad experience, she wanted to stay with the organization, and she convinced management to provide her with training and opportunities in different professional fields. Mary became an excellent student, and her confidence grew. As the years went by, she was promoted, and ultimately, she built a new career that brought her great pride. Elsewhere in the organization, Sherry, was passed over for several management slots. She was smart, polished, and technical proficient, but was told that she wasn't good fit for the, for the leadership track she hoped to pursue. Cherry felt entitled to a promotion and was angry about not moving up in a way she would expect it. Instead of listening to the feedback and trying another approach, she fumed and grumbled to everyone who would listen. As Cherry, allowed her resentment to grow, her co-workers tired of the chip on her shoulder. Nobody was sad to see Sherry go when she was hired away by a startup company, and she didn't resist the urge to fully express her bitterness. In her last week on the job, Sherry told her bosses just what she thought of them. When the startup quickly failed, nobody on her old team wanted to write her a favorable recommendation. Cherry ultimately had to take a lower level job in a different field. Now, move out of your own way and let go of workplace frustration. Do you arrive home from work too anxious to relax and enjoy your evening? Do you find yourself waking up in the middle of the night, fuming about what they are doing at the office? Do you hear yourself complaining to colleagues about how things are done around here? Professional life has always been full of annoying jolts and tedious challenges. Some career paths have become increasingly bumpy in recent years, 
With belt tightening and increasingly demands for production, it's understandable if you are feeling discouraged and indignant about how you have been treated. But just because there are strong reasons for your negative emotions doesn't mean you can afford to indulge in them. You are in charge of your career. If you hope to stay where you are and you want things to improve, you need to come up with a plan. And before you can implement your plan, you may need an attitude adjustment. Here are reasons to help fuming and let go of your preoccupations with the bad stuff at work. You must be present. If you want to move to a better career phase, you have to operate a high gear. But if you are preoccupied with how you were treated last week or last year, you can't be fully engaged in what's happening today. If you give in to annoyance, you could be less alert to new opportunities, less creative, and more likely to make mistakes. You must be energetic. When you are trying to launch a new plan, it helps to be in a great shape. But if you can't let go of your angst, you won't sleep as well. Your stress level will slow you down. Your health might suffer and you won't be able to do your best work. It's best to come across as an upbeat team player. Your best friends may be willing to listen to the story of your bad work breaks. But even they will grow tired of you if you don't move on. Most folks prefer working with positive people and they tend to avoid the high maintenance whiners. When you find a way to release your negativity, you'll be more productive, work better with others, and attract more opportunities. Do you feel like Cherry or Mary? It is possible. Is it possible that your continuing frustration is understand is undercutting your good work and limiting your career mobility? If it's time to lose your negative attitude, these strategies can help you. Notice, becoming aware of your frustration can be the first step in letting it go. Take a careful look at how you've been feeling and be honest with yourself about the consequences. Consider keeping a journal of your feelings. Once you have specifically described your misfortune and the pain it caused you, it's much easier to move past it all. Be grateful. Neuroscience research suggests that we don't experience gratitude and anxiety at the same time. As a result, your ire will eventually dissipate when you focus on things that cause you to feel thankful. So make a list of things for which you are most grateful and, and read that list a few times a day, including first thing in the morning and last thing at night. Take breaks. By pausing and shifting your focus, you can dispel pent-up antagonism and feel refreshed whether it means chatting with a friend, taking a short walk, or spending a few minutes meditating, take frequent breaks throughout the workday. And remember that regular exercise provides change of pace and can, be, and can help you feel more cheerful. Please rate this podcast and let me know what you think about this episode in the review.